There was a story that came out of New York City in the 1960s that absolutely shocked the world. Kitty Genovese was a 28-year-old bar manager. She managed a place called Evie's 11th Hour Bar. When she was traveling home from work or walking home from work late one night, early one morning, it was 3.30 in the morning, she was attacked and murdered. It was just a terrible crime. Now, the New York Times reported that there were 38 witnesses to the Kitty Genovese murder. 38 people that either saw or heard her being murdered. Some reports said that people stood around and watched while she was being murdered and did nothing at all to help. It was absolutely appalling. People couldn't believe something like that could happen. It was referred to as the crime that changed America. What was America coming to? Let's ask that question again. What was America coming to? When newspapers like the New York Times could publish out and out lies and get away with it. There were not 38 witnesses to the Kitty Genovese murder as reported by the New York Times. There were, why don't you take a guess? There were none. There were none. Yes, some people did hear the unfortunate woman call out for help, but it was 3.30 in the morning. People were sleeping. They didn't realize that she was crying out for help and that she was in distress. They just heard a voice. Now, one man actually went to the window, saw something taking place, and shouted at the attacker. The attacker left the scene, got in his car, and drove away. He came back later, and Kitty Genovese was murdered out of sight. An absolutely appalling act, a terrible tragedy. But what was reported had, very deliberately, virtually no basis in fact. Lies were told, and millions of people around the world remember the lies and don't remember the truth. When the Kitty Genovese murder was mentioned to me, I had pictures in my mind of some poor unfortunate woman being murdered on a street corner while people walked by and other people stood watching. Because that's the way the story was told. But that's 100% not what happened. You see, unfortunately, lies can be told and accepted as the truth. And it even happens in the church. Let me explain to you. It happens in the church. Jesus was born. And there were wise men who came from the east bearing gifts. What gifts did they bring? Would you tell me, please? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Great. And how many wise men were there? No, there was not three. Well, it may have been three. We don't know. The Bible simply doesn't tell us how many wise men visited Jesus. But we assume gold, that's one, two, that's frankincense and myrrh, that's three. So maybe they all carried a box each. There had to have been three of them. You see what happens? The story, and that's probably pretty harmless, but that's what happens. The story gets told and we say, okay, I'll buy that. 
and you're buying something that the Bible doesn't even faithfully represent. Now, here's another one. In Noah's day, we understand this because we were told when we were this big that the animals went on to Noah's ark what, by what? Two by two. You know what the Bible says? It doesn't say they went on two by two. It says they went on by sevens and by twos. The clean animals went on by sevens. The unclean animals went on by twos. That means that animals like cows, seven cows, seven lambs, seven deer, two pigs, two rabbits, two, um, I don't know, two lions. That's correct. Two lions, two tigers. That's right. It's interesting, isn't it, that we end up believing things and taking as fact things that aren't necessarily factual. You know that that happens. Uh, it's true that people used to believe that the earth is flat. Hey, wait long enough, it comes around again. Today you've got people believing again that the earth is flat. People used to believe that the earth is flat. People used to believe that spiders had six legs. How many did they have? They have eight legs. You're right about that. Long ago, you might think that I'm making this up, but I absolutely am not. Long ago, people in Britain used to believe that geese grew on trees. I'm not making that up. It's true. No joke. There was a certain barnacle that looked something like a goose. It was often found on driftwood, you understand. So people naturally enough believed that they were goose seeds and that's where geese came from. No, it's not a joke. It's absolutely true. Why do we believe what we believe? I'd like you to look at those two lines and tell me which one is the longest, please. That one, right? Clearly longer, right? Absolutely not. They're both exactly the same length. So now that I'm going to show you this, you, all, you can see it coming. Which line do you think people would assume is the longest? The top line, but the top line and the one beneath it, exactly the same length, you understand. And that's just how it goes. It's interesting that you can see something happen right in front of you and you can miss the reality. Happens all the time and we can be fooled by what we see. Sometimes the facts are not what they appear. A famous American magician, and I should tell you his name, but I don't think that's fair, got in trouble because somebody was hurt, a volunteer was hurt doing one of his acts. He would have people here on the stage and they would disappear and then suddenly miraculously appear at the back of the building and people would be wowed by that. And he had to tell in court how he actually performed the stunt because it was germane to what was going on in the court case. Now, of course, people don't disappear when on the stage. Uh, it's like they put a person in the closet, turn the closet around, open up the door, and there's no person there. Where's the person? Well, I don't know, but they didn't disappear. Might be under the floor, might be standing out here, maybe there's a false wall in front of them, something like that. Magicians aren't magic, they are illusionists. They're clever, they're skilled. It's kind of interesting. I remember being in India, and they arranged for a man to, to, to charm snakes for us. He played on this, this thing that sounded a lot like a kazoo, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and cobras came out of the, the baskets and every now and then they'd get a little closer. <laughs> we'd reach over and he'd swat them on the side of the face, which I thought, I don't know if cobras have a face, but on the side of the head. Really interesting. And afterwards the man uh, did a, a magic show for us and we weren't expecting this, but I guess it was just uh, part of the deal. Funniest thing, he had a little stand and on it paper. He lit the paper and it just burned up like this. Then he had a cover for the stand, popped it right on top of the paper. And then after a beat of about three or four seconds, he took the lid off and there, instead of burned up paper, were three little white mice. And I looked at that, I said, man, that guy's good. Now, there were some people here who were saying, oh, that's the devil. <laughs> How did he do? That's the devil. We don't want to watch any longer. And I looked, I said, I do. 
is I want to figure out how he did it. You know how he did it? You figure it out. I figured it out. I figured it out. You figure it out. You figure it out. They're illusionists. Good. Quite clever. But it's not magic. They are practiced in the art of misdirection so that you don't see things that happen right in front of you or you don't recognize what's taking place even though it's taking place right before your eyes. You know, they say the, the, the woman was sawn in half. No, she wasn't. She was, and you know she wasn't. She was never sawn in half. Something happened there and maybe something clever. The magicians aren't magic. They are illusionists. They're good, many of them, but they are not magic. So what happens when things aren't appear, when things aren't what they appear to be in the church. Now, when a magician says, I made the person disappear, you know that he or she did not, and it doesn't really matter because you're entertained. But in church, it's not entertainment, it's life and death. In fact, it's more important than that. It's eternal life and it's eternal death. Can you imagine people being deceived in church? Oh, well, you know what happens. The preacher is there and he's claiming to heal all kinds of people. And he's saying, there's a man. And he has a brown coat and he's somewhere towards the back and he has a heart condition. He just found out today and the poor man is saying, wow, how did he know that? It has to be the Lord. But his wife is out there interviewing people and then saying, honey, there's a man back here and he has an earpiece in his ear. <laughs> it's what happened. I could tell you the man's name, but I won't. It would be unfair. Oh, it wouldn't actually be unfair. But he's on television in the United States today asking people to send money to get healing water and prayer mats. It's quite unfortunate. Sure it happens in the church where people are deceived, where people are led astray. No, that person wasn't healed, but the people didn't know that. That person wasn't blessed by God, was blessed by a lady with a microphone speaking into her husband's earpiece. But of course, the people didn't know that and the show must go on and the dollars must flow. Young man wrote a book dealing with his journey to heaven, told of what he saw. I went to heaven. This is what it was like. I was dead for a while, and this is what I saw. And the book sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Did he die and go to heaven? You tell me. Of course he didn't. He later admitted that he made it up. He was under pressure from his old man who saw an opportunity for the family to cash out. And unsuspecting Christians were deceived. That's a shame. The pastor and his wife and a friend asked the congregation to invest in helping poor people. $1.2 million later, the church members lost all their money and their pastor was hauled off to appear in front of a court. Now, before we go any further, I wonder if, if you have figured out already how not to be deceived. How not to be deceived. When they say, here's a claim I'm making, I went to heaven, this happened, that happened. How do you prevent yourself from being deceived by that? Well, listen, there's a couple of things that are really important. One is the Bible. Read the Bible and just go with the Bible. If someone tells you that A plus B equals C, but the Bible says something quite different, what do you believe? You believe the Bible. Yeah, but wait a minute. We believe our relatives, don't we? We believe our friends, don't we? We believe our neighbors sometimes. We believe it because well, my, my mom and dad did it and their parents did it. We believe it because the priest told us or the pastor told us and far be it for me to question anything that they should say. Ladies and gentlemen, question. 
not in a negative way, I don't mean in a doubtful, certainly not a spiteful way, but in a search for truth, in a search for the truth of God. If some, you know, you use a certain brand of motor oil in your car and wild horses couldn't drag you away from that brand of motor oil. You're not going to change. You drive home on this particular freeway and you get off on exit 10, even though exit 12, you get home five minutes quicker. Nuh-uh. This is what I do, and I don't care what you tell me, I'm not going to change. But in the church, that same person who is dogged about the brand of motor oil that he or she uses turns to his friend and says, well, what do you think about God? Well, I think God is this and that. Okay. No, no, no. There are some things that you can't relegate to letting somebody else be your conscience and your guide for. The most important thing of all is your relationship with God. I said there were a couple of things that you ought to employ when trying to figure out how not to be deceived. One is the word of God. The other, ladies and gentlemen, it's okay to utilize some common sense. It's okay. 12-year-old boy went to heaven and wrote about it and you go, well, that's far out. No, use some common sense. It didn't happen. And you know it didn't happen. One, because the Bible says it didn't happen. And two, because what are the chances? Use some common sense. It's really important to do that. We are looking at something really serious when we look at the Bible. The book of Revelation talks about a time when a huge cover-up would take place. And it would affect especially Christians living down, well, I shouldn't say especially Christians, but it will certainly affect the whole world. But it will definitely affect believers, Christians living down at the end of time. The Bible says in Revelation 12 verse 9 that the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Please notice the serpent who is the devil is going to deceive according to the bible the whole world that same devil is coming after you and me what would satan have to do to deceive someone he would have to lead them away from the plainly revealed word of god david said god's word is a lamp and a light Jesus said, if you abide, the King James says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the what? Truth. And the truth shall make you some really important points there. If you get in the Bible and you hang in there, you are going to know the truth. Second important point, you can know the truth. Third point, the truth will make you free. Only the truth. Now, we know already that the devil is at war with God. He hates God. He did everything he could to turn Jesus' feet out of the pathway of faithfulness. Hates Jesus. And he hates you because God loves you. Hates all of us because we are the objects of God's love and affection and great sacrifice. He's at war with God. And he's at war with the government of God. And the government rests on a foundation known as law. The devil is at war with the law of God. If he can lead people into deception on the subject of the law of God, then he can undermine that person's faith and lead that person away from the pathway God wants him or her to be on. God's law, remember, is an expression of who God is. Can't change it because you'd have to change God. It reflects God. It explains God. It portrays God. That's what the law does. Tamper with God's law and you are disturbing the picture of who God is. And when Satan gets you to break God's law, he's getting you to break God's heart. Keep something in mind about the devil. He's smart. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into, and would you tell me please, an angel of light. You know, the devil not going to come along to you dressed in a red suit, holding a pitchfork, got a pointy tail. He's not going to do that. He's going to come to you, he's going to be smoother and he's going to be smarter and better looking than that and he's going to be eloquent and he'll quote the Bible when it suits him to do so and then he'll misquote it when it suits him to do that. He led one third of the angels in heaven to rebel against God and if he could deceive a third of the angels, you know that poor people like us are easy pickings unless we've made the Bible, unless we have made God our uh, sure defense. In the book of Daniel, you read in Daniel 7 and verse 25 that there would be a power in the earth that ultimately, listen, would think to change times and laws. We're not talking about the speed limit here. This is an assault on the Ten Commandment law of God. I wonder if it's, if, I wonder if it's possible. I wonder if it's possible that a deception could come into the world I wonder if it's possible that a deception could come into the world and come into the church that's so effective that people could fall for the deception while thinking they are doing God's will. How does the devil tempt people? He gets to atheists and he says, there's no God. And atheists are like, there's no God. Gets evolutionists to deny that God is the creator. Some people, he gets them into drugs and immorality and alcoholism. That's how he gets some people. But how does he get, how does he get believers? He's never going to get you, giving you the benefit of the doubt here, he's never going to get you to decide that there is no God and you're going to turn your back on God and be an atheist. At least the chances are slim. The vast majority of people here will never be tempted by alcoholism or drug addiction, not even tempted by it. So the devil looks at people like us and he says, mm, there's, there's got to be a way, and he figures out a way. What if I can get people to think they're actually obeying God when they're actually not obeying God? I wonder if he could do that. Do you think he could get Christians to break the law without realizing they were breaking the law. Who's that? Can you tell me? You can't tell me. That's men at work. Somebody who may well have misspent a significant portion of her youth. And men at work became really popular all over the world for a song called Come On. Land down under. I come from a land down under, uh, and whatever. And men at work got themselves into some strife a few years ago because the person who owned the copyright to Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree, that copyright is owned, realized that there is a little piece of flute played in Down Under that is lifted right out of the Kookaburra song. It's taken straight from Kookaburra and it's played on the flute in Down Under. And the people who owned that copyright to Kookaburra said, "Uh uh-uh, you weren't to do that. You did that without permission and you stole our tune. 
And men at work said, no, no, we're not, we don't buy that. And they said, you owe us $100,000. And men at work said, we're not going to pay you $100,000. So they took it to court and ended up spending $4.5 million in legal fees. Strictly speaking, the magicians, sorry, strictly speaking, the musicians had broken the law, strictly speaking. But that was a petty, miserable case. No one realized what had happened. But the law is the law. The point is, they broke the law without even realizing it. Down Under. There can't be a more Australian song than Down Under, can there? How many people realize that the lead singer of Men at Work, Colin Hay, is Scottish? Did you know that? Of course you did, misspent youth. Scottish, I just think that's kind of fun. It can happen. You can break the law without even realizing it. And as men at work found out, there are consequences to that. Look at what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now that is the fourth commandment. And God gave the fourth commandment to the human family for a really special reason. One He gave it for the purpose of rest. The word Sabbath means rest. Two, he gave it so we would have time to connect with each other. God gave the Sabbath so we would have time to connect with God. And he gave us the seventh-day Sabbath because it is a memorial. It is a memorial of the fact that God is the creator and that therefore God is the re-creator. He has power to create. And he has power to recreate. I grew up in a little town of, I don't know, about 5,000 people on the banks of the Waikato River in New Zealand, about an hour and 15 minutes south of Auckland. And one place that I liked to visit, and I still do, down where the two rivers meet, we call that the point for some reason, there's a war memorial down there, a cenotaph. And it was erected in honor of the soldiers from our town that died originally in the Great War, the uh, World War One, and then uh, conflicts after that. And as you walk around this thing, you'll see uh, you'll see their names inscribed here and here and in the other places around there, and the various conflicts where uh, our men fought. It's a war memorial. It reminds us that something happened on Anzac Day. People gather there and pay their respects. People like me will go by and do so at other times. I visited memorials all over the world some fantastic memorials and they call us to remember God gave us the seventh day Sabbath as a memorial it calls us to remember to forever keep in mind that God is our creator and our recreator it's right in the heart of God's law it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that the Sabbath day would come under attack it shouldn't surprise us because it encourages us to spend time with God that's just what the devil does not want you to do It reminds us that we are dependent on God. He is our maker. It reminds us that God can create in us a clean heart. And so the devil doesn't want us to remember that. God gave the seventh-day Sabbath to the human family right back at creation. It was not Jewish. Someone's going to say, oh, yeah, sure, but that was a Jewish thing. Wait, 
It was given at creation. How many Jews did God put into the Garden of Eden? None. There was not a Jew on the earth for 2,300 years after creation. God's people kept the Sabbath as they wandered in the wilderness, when they settled in the promised land, when Jesus lived on earth. And after Jesus died and went to heaven, there was just one day that was kept holy in accordance with the word of God, and that was the seventh day Sabbath. Now, I want you to think about something. If it was changed, it would be a really big deal. And if it was changed by the Christians, all hell would have broken loose. The Jews would have gone absolutely nuts. The Sabbath was a big deal in Jesus' day and just after Jesus died. It was a really big deal to Jews. If you go to Jerusalem, when the Sabbath kicks in, Jerusalem pretty much shuts down an entire city. Just a few stores that are run by, by people who are not Jewish, you understand. It's big. Can you imagine... The disciples say, you know something, we're keeping another day now. Oh my goodness. It would have driven the Jews mad. It would certainly have been talked about in the Bible. And if God was going to change one of his commandments, can you imagine him doing that without telling anybody clearly? Can you imagine that in order to understand that the Ten Commandments had been changed, you've got to dig into the book of Colossians and do some sort of uh, spiritual gymnastics to make your point. It doesn't make any sense at all. This is the word of God. If there was going to be some sort of constitutional amendment regarding the Ten Commandments, the Bible would undoubtedly say something about it. And so we'll look in the Bible for a few moments. I'll tell you this, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Sabbath is referred to 50 times, 50, maybe more. The first day of the week, Sunday, that most people today would accept as the day of rest, that's mentioned in the Bible eight times. So if the Sabbath day was changed to Sunday, surely one of those eight mentions is going to tell us. It just must. It absolutely must. So let's look at them, not all eight of them, because five of them simply say it was the first day. It was the first day. It happened to be the first day. Nothing was happening on those first days, but there are three times in the New Testament that the first day of the week is mentioned and there's some extra information given. So let's pause and look at these. First one that we'll look at is found in John chapter 20. Jesus had recently, just very recently, died on the cross. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week. That's the day that today we would call what? Sunday. Seventh day is Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. Same day of the week at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now you could believe that they were having a little worship service because the day had been changed since Jesus died on the cross. But that's not true. Why were they congregated together? Would you tell me please? It says it in the passage. They were scared stiff. Jesus had been killed and the disciples figured we are next on the hit list. They were there for fear of the Jews. They weren't there celebrating the resurrection. They didn't even know that the resurrection had taken place. So this verse doesn't show us that for some reason the seventh day Sabbath was changed and it definitely doesn't show us that Sunday is somehow a holy day. And so we'll look at another one here. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given order to the churches in Galatia, even so you must do also. Now it says, on the what day of the week? 
let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. I remember listening to a Christian radio station and they had a competition. They said, answer this question. Where in the Bible does it say that offerings in church should be taken up on the first day of the week? And the answer given was 1 Corinthians 16. Come on now, let's be honest with each other. That's all, let's be honest. The text is on the screen. Does it say anything about taking up an offering in church? Does it say anything about church? Doesn't even say anything about church. It was nothing to do with any of that. Paul asked the believers in Corinth to put money aside on a given day each week so that when we get there, we're not going to have to pass the hat. You'll already have your money put aside. We'll just gather it. And then we can take it to help the saints that are in Jerusalem. Nothing to do with the worship service. Nothing to do with resurrections. Nothing to do with uh, Jesus having changed the law of God. Nothing. And I want you to notice uh, the book that this is written in is first what? First Corinthians. You've got to notice details like this. Because in Acts chapter 18, it says that Paul was in Corinth, and he reasoned in the synagogue on what day of the week? Every Sabbath. So he's not going to write to the Corinthians and say, you're in church on Sunday, and go to Corinth and worship on and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's easy to be consistent because the Bible is so very clear. Acts 20, now that's that's two out of three. We're left with just one more mention of the first day of the week. And we find it in Acts chapter 20, where the Bible says, now on the first day of the week, on the what day of the week? When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Yeah, and something happened. You remember the story and you will know what happened. There were many lamps in the upper room. Now, if there were lamps burning, what time of day was it? It was nighttime. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. The moral of the story is clear. Don't fall asleep in church. <laughs> you might say, John, the moral of the story is clear. Don't speak all night long. So, so I'll... I'll hurry along here. There was a preaching service on the first day of the week. Did that indicate that the Sabbath day had been changed? No. As a matter of fact, this didn't even take place on Sunday. It took place on Saturday night. How do we know that? Because it was the first day of the week. When does a day start and end? It starts at sunset and ends at sunset. So if it was Sunday night, that wouldn't be the first day. It would be the second day. Are you following me? I'll say that again. When the sun sets on Friday, the seventh day has begun, biblically speaking. And then when the sun sets on Saturday, the seventh day ends and the first day begins. So nighttime Saturday night is the first day of the week. When the sun sets Sunday evening and then it becomes dark on Sunday, that's the second day of the week. So it was Saturday night and they were having a preaching service. Now, it doesn't mean that they were keeping the Sabbath holy because the Sabbath had ended. It doesn't mean they were... What, what day is it today? Is it Wednesday? Yeah, we're having a preaching service. Does that mean that this is the Sabbath day or that it's a holy day? No, it just means that we're opening the Bible together and that's that. 
A day begins and ends at sunset. Leviticus 23 and Mark 1 put them together and it makes that clear. So Paul is preaching on Saturday nights. If you read the story, it tells us that he eats and then he sleeps. And the next day he walks to a place called Assos, which is about 24, 23 kilometers away. If it was the Sabbath, the brother would not have been going on a 14-mile hike. He wouldn't have been doing that. That would have been way out of harmony with the customs of the day. See, the Sabbath points us to Jesus, the one who walked on this earth after he had created this earth. And he calls us on earth's final days to worship him as the creator. In Revelation 14, verse 7, it says, Worship him who made heaven and earth and the seas and the springs of waters. There's a call to us. You see, I don't want you to think, oh, this doesn't affect us. Oh, it does. Because in the last gospel message to go to the world, God calls to us and he says, worship him who made heaven and earth. And what's interesting is this. I've not told you this yet. In Revelation, there's 404 verses. About three quarters of them contain allusions to or quote directly from the Old Testament. Where did John get all this language from? You look, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, lots of Old Testament references. If you look at this, the angel having the gospel message says, fear God, give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Where did he get that from? I'll tell you, he got it from Exodus chapter 20, where it talks about him who made heaven and earth and the seas and all that in them is. That's where John quoted from. So in quoting from the fourth commandment, he was helping us to understand that God wants us to keep the fourth commandment. The angel uses that same language as Moses wrote down as God spoke. Now, I've met honest-hearted people who read the Bible and they see that God blessed the Sabbath and rested on the Sabbath and that God sanctified the Sabbath. But it's confusing for them because everywhere they turn, they see people going to church on Sunday. Then they say, these aren't bad people and they're going to worship God and that seems to be like a good activity. So... How come people are going to church on Sunday when it is not the day that God blessed and rested on and sanctified? What else do you read in the Bible? It says that Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That's what Jesus did. And he explicitly stated that the Sabbath would and should be observed Long after he died, he was speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in the year 70 AD, 39 years after he was nailed to the cross. And he said of it, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Jesus was saying 40 years after I die, this will still be important to you and to God. You read in Revelation that God has a day. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then you read in the Bible where the disciples couldn't have changed it. Couldn't. Because Acts 5.29 says, we ought to obey, tell me, God, rather than what makes it so important to us 
is that it's important to Jesus. It's biblical. It's the will of God. He made it. He observed it. And God worked miracles to safeguard it. In Exodus chapter 16, they're wandering in the wilderness. They have no food. God feeds them with what? How many days out of the week did the manna fall to the ground? Six. But it, now that's a miracle. But it didn't fall on the seventh day, the Sabbath. That's another miracle. If you took enough for two days and you kept some from Monday uh, until Tuesday, what would happen to the excess? It would spoil. Right. But if you took enough on Friday to last for Friday and the Sabbath, it would last. That's another miracle. So I'm going to say three miracles a week every year. Three miracles a week every week. That's 156 miracles. For 40 years, that's 6,240 miracles that God worked specifically to demonstrate to the people that the seventh day was the Sabbath and it was important to God. It was important to God then, it's important to God now. It's about love for God and reverence for God and obeying God and accepting Jesus into your life and letting the will of God be done in your experience and communing with God and backing off from the world just a little bit one-seventh of the time. This is pregnant with meaning. It's filled with meaning and importance. And God says, this is a gift. The Sabbath was made for humanity. The Bible says in Mark chapter 2, read that there uh, late in the chapter. God made it for you. It's a gift. Designed it and made it and gave it to you. So man, how did it get changed? It was written on tables of stone. It's written in every Bible you can find. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Every Bible. And yet everywhere you turn, there are people who've somehow gotten confused. How could a change like that happen? Well, let me tell you something. It didn't happen overnight. The change came gradually. Now, in the fourth century... The emperor of the Roman Empire was a man named Constantine. His empire was fractured and he was endeavoring to unite the Roman Empire. And so what he did was he passed a law that would cause everyone to unite religiously. Had some people begun observing Sunday worship before now? Yes, I'll tell you who. The pagans... Because they worship the sun on the day of, how do you think the name got, the day got its name? Sunday, the day on which the sun is worshipped. It's the day of the sun. But some Christians had started to observe it as well. Some few. Constantine said, look, I can bring everybody together here. Constantine was nominally converted. He was baptized. He, no one really believes he was truly converted. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to worship the Christian God. But we'll worship the Christian God on the pagan day, the Sunday. And he passed a decree in the year 321 AD that said, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let shops be closed. Now look at this, written in 1994, because you think, Wow, why doesn't everybody know about this? Surely people don't know about it. 
No one ever told me this. So if it's about the law of God and the law of God is important and Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If Constantine changed the day, why don't we know? Well, we do. I'm going to read this quote to you. It's from 1994, which, as many of us will testify, was just yesterday. The sun was a foremost god with heathendom. There is, in truth, something royal, kingly about the sun, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the son of justice. Hence, the church in these countries would seem to have said, keep that old pagan name. It shall remain consecrated, sanctified, and thus the pagan Sunday dedicated to Baldur became the Christian Sunday sacred to Jesus. Biblical, yes or no? You tell me. No. God's idea, yes or no? No, no, no. 100% not God's idea. What happened was Constantine changed the day and then the church followed in Constantine's footsteps. The Church Council of Laodicea refers to the first prohibition uh, of keeping the Bible Sabbath. And this was uh, in the middle of the 4th century AD. Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday. See, see, first it was keep Sunday. Then it became don't keep God's day. But the Lord's day they shall especially honor. And as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing... They shall be shut out from Christ. Now, there were penalties. There was a gradual change. Now, when I was a little fellow, I studied out of a catechism just like this. Briefly, briefly I did. But this is what the catechism said. Which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. The follow-up question is, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? The answer because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Well, I'm not casting aspersions at anybody here. This isn't a criticism. This is merely historical fact. And this is, as you see, from a Roman Catholic source. The Catholic Church says, we changed the day. And they're right about that. Really, they did. Constantine made a political change. The Roman Catholic Church came along behind Constantine and made a religious change. And so I ask the question, does any church have authority to fundamentally change the law of God? No, the answer is absolutely no. One cardinal wrote this. Sorry, not cardinal. <laughs> Got confused because I thought of his first name. One man named Carl, not cardinal. Carl Keating wrote this. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday. And he said, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. And I don't mean to overdo this, but I'll give you one more. And this was from a cardinal. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of, tell me, of Saturday. That's correct. And so the question is, what's going to be our guide? God's word, God's truth, or tradition? And surely the word of God must be our guide. And I know that this can come close to a person. I know this from experience. But the question's not really difficult. The question 
is who made us, Jesus made us. Who suffered for us, Jesus suffered for us. Who died for us, Jesus did. Who rose for us, Jesus rose from Joseph's new tomb for us. Who has redeemed us, Jesus has. And so when Jesus says, this is the way, would you follow me? Surely what we would say to that question is, tell me. Yes, we would follow you, Jesus. You can't be saying, oh, this might be too much. We're talking about faith here. Faith, faith believes what God says. Faith acts on the promises of God. Faith takes God at his word. So we have to ask ourselves what the foundation of our faith is. And will we settle on what God says or on what some human being says? It sometimes isn't easy to see a clear way forward, but not for Bible reasons. Let me say that again. Sometimes when we see a difficulty, when we don't see the way clear, it's not because of what the Bible says. Now, when the Bible says you need to forgive somebody and you go, oh, I don't want to forgive them, you're having a hard time because of what the Bible says. But this isn't because of what the Bible says. Sometimes it's a challenge to grow in faith because of our history. Sometimes it's a challenge because we're concerned about what our family members might think. Sometimes it's a challenge because we see what other people are doing and, you know, peer pressure is a wonderful animal. But remember what faith is. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. And faith is relying on the word of God to do what it says it will do because it says it will. Good advice. Jesus said, and we quote this at the end of every It Is Written television program, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I say this kindly, but friend, you know, when you go to, does anybody go to Sizzler anymore? Is that a thing still? I lived in Sydney in the 90s. I liked Sizzler, man, they were good. What happened to Sizzler? Closed down. Oh, they sizzled, what? They sizzled out. <laughs> you know, when I'm done, you should just get up here for five or ten minutes because that was pretty good. Well done. So, so sizzler is basically sizzled out and, and it's gone. But So when you go to sizzler, what's the equivalent of sizzler today? What's a, some smorgasbord place you go to? Is there one? No. Well, you know, but, but here's why sizzler is a great example. Because you go to Sizzler, right, and you grab your plate and you say, ooh, I want some of that. And then you go, I don't want that. And so I take more of this. I want, I want hot chips, but I don't want Brussels sprouts, you know? Ooh, avocado, mmm, give me some of that. But, oh, uh, broccoli, I don't need that. Well, wait, I really need that. I just don't want that. So when you go to a buffet or a smorgasbord restaurant, the whole idea is that you take what you want and you leave what you don't want. Right? You know what I'm saying? We shouldn't treat the Bible like that. We don't come to the Bible with our plate and say, oh, a little Jesus, I'll take that. Oh, oh a little grace, I'll have some of that. Mm. Uh, the Psalms, I'll have some of that. Obedience. Mm. I'll take a little. I'll take a little. Commandments. There are ten. I'll take nine. That's not Christianity. And it certainly isn't God's will. And it certainly isn't love for God. 
Now, if you've never heard this before, you're going, wow, this is new. What I'd encourage you to do is to say, wow, cool. I learned something that's God's will for my life. And now I'm going to pray because I know what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. And in the book of Revelation, God speaks about the saints and says, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. By the way, this isn't a matter of days. It's not a matter of who's right. It's not a matter of getting the, if it was, I don't care what, if it was Wednesday, I'd be keeping Wednesday holy. If the Bible said, remember the fourth day of the week, I'd be all over it. No problem. If it was Thursday, we ought to keep Thursday holy. Let's find out what God wants because after all, God made us and Jesus is coming back to get us and take us home. And so we say, what does God want? It's God's will that's important, not mine, not yours. It's God's will that's important. You know, it's a little bit like what happened in the Garden of Eden. The, the serpent said to Eve, hey, you can eat from any tree you want. And it was when Eve pleased herself that the entire human family was plunged into sin and Jesus' death was assured. Because someone decided he, she, they would do what they wanted to do. Jesus calls to us tonight. Joshua called to the people long ago. He said, choose you. Oh, wait, no, wait a moment. Got my, got my, my quote wrong. He called to the people and he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I wonder if you can say tonight, I will serve the Lord. Funny story, interesting story. For many years, marine charts, marine charts all over the world showed a little island west of New Caledonia in the Coral Sea off the northeast coast of Australia called Sandy Island. It appeared on marine charts and maps all around the world, Sandy Island. But when scientists from the University of Sydney traveled to that area, they made a rather remarkable discovery. Instead of an island, they found nothing. Sandy Island had apparently disappeared. Well, how does an entire island, even a relatively little one, just vanish into the ether? Well, it didn't vanish into the ether. Never existed in the first place. <laughs> Evidently, somebody drawing a map either was having fun or made an error. And the error was repeated and repeated and it was entrenched over time so that people just accepted the non-fact that Sandy Island was right there when truthfully Sandy Island wasn't. No one checked. Its existence was assumed. So one day it was there on the map and the next day it was gone. They decided to remove it from the map. Sandy Island is the island that disappeared. We have a day that disappeared. One day God said, here's the Sabbath, Adam and Eve. And they said, cool, great. We get to spend that day with you every week. Awesome. 
And wandering in the wilderness, Moses and the children of Israel said, yeah, this is God's day. It's the Sabbath. And Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the followers of Jesus obeyed the commandment of God. And they were worshiping on the Sabbath. But man, somewhere along the line, things got a little confused and mixed up. And that Sabbath day that was observed by every believer in God suddenly just Disappeared. We have a day that disappeared. What happens when one of God's commandments disappears? Well, the truth is it doesn't. It cannot. Read the Bible and you discover it's still there. And God offers that to you. He says, this is for you. I want you to get the most out of life. And so this is for you. He is a good God a great God, and his son Jesus is coming back soon to take, it, take us home. God says, I have something for you, something special. Just a few days ago, it was Mother's Day. I ordered something for my wife. I got the kids involved. I said, ah, oh, we want to buy mum this. So can you help me find the right this? And it was my daughter who said, Dad, I think this is the one you want. She sent me the link online. I clicked on that link I said yeah that's the one my daughter and I went backwards and forwards about the right shape the right model the right whatever it was we decided this is it buy it for mum well you know it didn't it didn't arrive in time for Mother's Day so my daughter printed out a picture from online with a picture of it and put it in a card and said mum this is yours and she opened it up and I was confused a couple of nights ago I was talking to my wife she said thank you for my gift I know it hasn't arrived yet. She was thanking me for the paper with the picture of the gift right on it. There. <laughs> we gave it to her. It was a gift. It's special. When it finally arrives, it'll be really special. She'll be really happy. It was a gift. Do you think she'll value it? Yeah. It was given to her by her husband and her daughter. Well, she'll value it. It was a gift. It's special. It's a gift. The Sabbath is a gift. There's little to be gained by arguing about days. There's little to be gained by arguing about, oh, really, should I? God has spoken. Sure, we should. No question about it. There's everything to be gained by saying, oh, thank you, Lord. You're really good. Thank you, Heavenly Father. You know what's best for me. Thank you. This is biblical. It's in the Word. I want to be an obedient person. I'm grateful to you for everything. It's everything to be gained. So I would like to give you the opportunity tonight to gain. 